welcome back to the Dr. Body Mind Soul podcast. My name is Dr. Jude and this is a podcast which explores how we can integrate modern medicine and alternative therapies to help you get the holistic health care that you deserve. I will be speaking to healers and seekers, researchers and authors who will share their experiences and the evidence to help guide us all to holistic health. Let's do this. Cardin Rabin is co-founder of CFS School, who is as big of a geek when it comes to mind-body research as me. He is a regular contributor to Bessel van der Kirk's Trauma Research Foundation. Having worked in body work for the past 15 years, he now specializes in somatic experiencing and the psycho-emotional aspects of chronic pain. Well, Cardin, welcome. Hi, Jim. This conversation has been a long time in a long time coming, I think, hasn't it? It has. It has. I think actually we we first reached out to one another a year ago. That sounds right. Cause I, I don't I don't remember the time, I remember the weather, right? And it was warmish. Yeah, it, it was it was it was about a year ago. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And then we actually spoke for the first time in winter I remember that and I've since um had Jen on the podcast and she really went through she introduced us to CFS school um, and mm. Jen is your co-founder to this whole venture and I really wanted to get you onto the podcast as well because you bring a really different perspective to your approach and I really love the the geeky science-based um kind of a thought process that you really can explain so well and that's what yeah. I really want to get into um on this episode today is can you take me through the core tenets of the CSF school and really why you chose to focus on them and go into the science that underpins those tenets yeah I'd love to talk about that. So, so right, let's have all the listeners, I don't know, grab their tea or their coffee. And uh, I, uh, I'll do my, I tend not to be boring. So hopefully this won't be boring. You know, I think it should be an interesting thing. Do you, you think we can go from the, like, from front to back, right? Like talking about like, you know, when most people um, start getting interested in this work, it's because they're sick, right? Something's wrong. And for the sake of today's conversation, we can go right into like presuming that someone listening to this podcast has chronic, has been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, fibromyalgia, right? And they are dealing with a very confusing host of symptoms, right? At the very least, they're dealing with fatigue, right? This like, oh my God, like, I can't believe my, my body weighs a million pounds. And even the idea of like, going from my bed to the bathroom is, is almost inconceivable, right? Like, like that's an insane thing to be experiencing, right? Um, simultaneously, they might have other weird symptoms where after they do a small amount of activity, they crash and they feel really bad. Their heart might be doing weird things, uh, beating too much, right? Beating too little, um, if you've got fibromyalgia, you've got like weird pain everywhere. And it's like, why does my body hurt? And that, you know, all that's really weird. And um, if you're fortunate enough, you do go to a doctor 
who at least gives you a label. They say you've got this, a syndrome title, an itis title, an alga title, which, you know, as you, Jude, know more than anyone, it's, it's not actually a diagnosis. It's a label for a collection of symptoms that medicine doesn't know why is happening. Am I right? You're very much right. A syndrome is exactly that. So any syndrome that we um, are calling a syndrome is just a collection of symptoms that tend to arise um, or occur together. And it's very often that it's unclear as to why they have they occur in that way. And there, I was revising, you know, really carefully about chronic fatigue syndrome just the other day. And it's quite sad to still be so unclear on the pathophysiology or the origins or the, the underlying mechanisms and how little of that's understood from the medical perspective. So you're absolutely right. We don't know why these symptoms occur together. When they do occur together, we label them as chronic fatigue syndrome, but that's all that that label is suggesting. They're this group yeah. of sy symptoms that occur together. Yeah. So thanks for, you know, really dialing that in. And, and then furthermore, right. Physicians all do want to help, right. They got into the, into, they got into it because they, they care about people yet they're going to help based on the knowledge base and training that they have. And so if I were to compare this to, I just had a fire at a building that I own and we had to repair it. And so, you know, there's the general contractor and the general contractor, most of them are usually, they're mainly carpenters, right? They know how to frame out structures. They know how to set up the skeleton. They know how to hang sheetrock. But most GCs, don't do heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. They don't do electric. They don't do plumbing. It's not their wheelhouse, right? They don't have those knowledge sets. And if we take, you know, you're a physician. Someone comes into you with chronic fatigue syndrome with these weird syndromes. You're going to do what you do. Let's call a doctor, a general a practitioner, a carpenter for a moment. They're going to take bloods, right? They're going to, right? They might do an x-ray. They might do an MRI. They're looking at the things they know how to look at. Blood chemistry. Uh, bones, um, again, really out there with an MRI. Maybe they're trying to see what's going on with the brain or some other things. Can you do what would be maybe a handful of other things that are in that normal physician carpenter toolbox? The reception just dodged out for a second, which is why that that was, that was unclear. Um, were you asking for suggestions on what else we might do? Yeah, like what if, if I see it best and I'm going to my GP, what else might they try to, to look at? So, I mean, I think that they'll refer you to a neurologist. I think they might refer you, they, they, they may do muscle testing. So they may be testing your muscles, which may include a biopsy. Um, the process of which, that which a doctor is going to be working you up is going to be with the intent of excluding other conditions because this is a diagnosis of exclusion so we are looking for any organic what we call organic causes for fatigue and we're doing that as you as you said through blood tests you, you'll be referred to a neurologist you'll be and you and you may be referred to a rheumatologist all looking for evidence of autoimmune disease 
Um, as I say, you may get your muscles tested. You most certainly will get an MRI. Um, but all of these approaches are looking to exclude other pathology. Yeah, I love that. So, so to get to the to, to the meat of this, folks, um, if we were to go into our building analogy, right, and um, my a light switch won't turn on, right? Uh, a light switch won't be activating light. And if I call my car, also in this analogy, pretend that nobody knows, there's nobody knows what electricity is, okay? There's a light switch, there's a light that won't turn on, nobody knows what electricity is. So you call your carpenter and say, hey, this, this switch, which used to turn on this light, isn't working anymore. And the carpenter comes over and says, oh, well, it seems to be in the wall okay, it goes up and down like it should. I'm sorry, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. Um, maybe that light never fucking turned on. It might have been, maybe you're hallucinating, right? Carpenter comes in, doesn't know how to help, right? So you call the plumber, right? The plumber comes in, and granted, there's no water around this thing, but the local light will be like, well, it seems like the, the copper pipes over here and the drain over there that don't even have anything to do with lay seem fine. I don't know what could be wrong, right? People are coming in and looking at someone who's sick with CFS with what they know. And you brought up a neurologist, Jude. This is this thing that I, I, it explodes my fucking brain with incredulity and anger. Because PhD, MD neurologists are extraordinarily well-educated people. But they're still looking at the nervous system like Neanderthals. And what do I mean? If you go to a neurologist pain management doctor, the primary thing they're doing is looking for, quote, inflamed nerves, right? Or areas of compression where a bone meets a bone and a nerve might be irritated, okay? So these people with radical education are still basically going, oh, there's two parts of something rubbing against each other. That might be the cause of the pain, and I'm going to inject it with a steroid. That's like the state of the art of, of a neurologist pain management technique, right? Or I'm just going to flood you with oral steroids. Like all of this education comes down to this touch that it look hot, me make it cool. Hopefully you're better. That's bananas. Because what's it implying, guys, and what's different about CFS school? What's different about mind-body practitioners? What's different about people who are understanding the nervous system is that it's not so much about the structure of the nerve, meaning like where is it traveling and if it's being squished. Guys, it's about the information being transmitted in the bloody nerve, right? Give you one more example. Imagine aliens came to planet Earth and saw satellites and cell phone towers and cables and fiber optic networks. And they're like, ooh, I bet this is used for something. But those aliens never got inside of it. They never saw the internet. They never saw YouTube. They never saw Reddit. They never saw Instagram. They'd have zero clue to what the system was actually for. They'd just see pipes and conduits and broadcasts. They'd understand that if one of those pipes were cut, that part wouldn't work. But they still would have no context for the information running through it. And so what we're dealing here with, folks, is when you have this constellation of weird syndromes and we look into your blood chemistry or your bones or see if there's a nerve pitch, and that's all like remarkably rudimentary. That's all super missing the mark. That's the carpenter wondering why the light switches. 
right? And what you really need is an electrician and a software engineer of the mind and the body, of the brain and the nervous system and says, why is the brain and the nervous system doing what it's doing? Why is the brain and the nervous system directing this body to be so exhausted? Why is the brain and the nervous system reacting so uh, chaotically to trying to exercise? Why is the brain and the nervous system creating pain in various regions of my body for no particularly observable reason? And when you start asking those questions, rather than being like, I don't know, it's wrong, you get very different lines of scientific inquiry, and you get very different lines of therapeutic intervention. I love these metaphors and analogies because they do allow a degree of that. Well, I think it just underpins the whole problem that I think we we have as a, in our healthcare system, which is just operating within our own silos, and actually each contractor not being aware of what the other one can do, <laughs> and so it beca- it can become. Um, really isolating for anyone who's actually trying to fix their overall problem. Um, yeah. That's what I'm trying to uh, address with Dr. Body, Mind, Soul, really, is to actually get an overview about all the different approaches that are available in um, in managing these problems. Because as a doctor myself, I'm totally guilty of being a product of my own education and and initially believing that this is the only way to be able to see or consider this particular problem. So it's really, it's really, uh, it's a really easy way to understand the problems and then understand the solutions. So what you're, you're talking really about the problem being in the information that's being communicated from the brain to the body. There's, yeah. a, there's a problem here in what is not so much that the information isn't getting from A to B. There is communication from A to B, but the information that is being communicated is causing pain and dysfunction and a huge radical shift in our the patient's overall state of well-being. Yeah, now I've got some science for you now, Jude, because I know you want you wanted to go. So, and again, back to our example. So we have CFS and it basically means we have no energy. All right. So we're dealing with a no energy state. So let's bring in another parallel here, folks, which is um, I call it the um, essential binary or like the prime directive of your organism, guys. And your organism is what Jude and I will use as the language to talk about everything, your brain, your nervous system, your cellular system, your organs, like just all of it. And take it from us that your organism doesn't separate itself into parts like us humans do, right? We don't, our organism, right? My, my kneecap doesn't feel that it's different from my brain. It just says, this is us. So just put it there. That's why we're using this term organism. Your organism is is fundamentally and evolutionarily completely organized around the logic of survival. A, B, zero, one, black, white. Is this going to kill me or is it going to feed me? Is this dangerous or not? 
That is the zero and one. Those are, that's the software building blocks of the entire operating system of your organism. So let's start there, right? I said, when you start thinking about the information in the nervous system, you start asking different questions. But in order for your questions to make sense, you have to at least know the basics of what your organism is trying to do, which is as simple as it's trying to not die and it's trying to live. That's always its organizing principle. Over millions of years of evolution, it has developed some, a variety of strategies to execute the not dying goal, right? And um, those have come along for millions and millions of years. But folks, they boil down to anytime your organism perceives threat, lack of safety, scarcity, abuse, neglect, anything that's in the not good for me category, it responds with the fight, flight, which are the sympathetic, the action responses of survival to one degree or another. It doesn't mean like, you know, when, when, you're, uh, when uh, your boss is being mean to you that you punch him in the face or run away, but there might be some sympathetic activation. Fight, flight response is one of the pr most primordial survival mechanisms that our organism does. Then even more primordial than that, meaning preceding that, is the freeze response or what we call tonic immobility. It's the parasympathetic route of survival. We inherited it from lizards, by the way, okay? And it says, I'm going to survive by not moving and by using less energy. Whereas the sympathetic path, the fight flight says, I'm going to survive by getting the fuck out of here and using a ton of energy. So logic of the nervous system, don't die, live. Primary, two primary behaviors or ways of, ways of the organism to do that, parasympathetic freeze, energy conservation, sympathetic fight flight. Everyone with me so far? Give me a head nod all the way in podcasting land. Now, in your ideal organism, uh, you can't see this, guys, but I'm making a wave with my hand, right? Like a parabola up and down, up and down. The nervous system is designed to go from sympathetic activation to parasympathetic activation, both in a survival instance and a regular day, right? When you get up to brush your teeth, you're going into sympathetic, right? You need some arousal. And then when you're taking a nap after lunch, siesta, you're going into parasympathetic. It's meant to go up and down, up and down, up and down. All right. In CFS, usually what's happened for most people is that their that logic of survival, that brain trying, that organism trying to survive has actually been in sympathetic mode. It's been in a overdrive, a vigilance, an anxiety, a hard work. You very rarely meet people with CFS who were doing nothing before they got sick. They were usually some kind of performer, whether that was like, I mean, like they were, they were working, they were mothering kids. They were working, they were in a PhD program, they were in school, they were pushing an athletic boundary, um, they were doing all their things, but they had like a death in the family, a divorce, they had this like convergence when they really look back of many threats, right? Just from that, that organism perceiving danger, 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 danger. And it went on for a long time and their nervous system was in the sympathetic, the fight flight state for a while. Very simply put, guys, 
Your remarkable organism can maintain that active, that fight flight, that high energy consumption response for quite a long time. But it was never designed to. No other animal in nature is exposed to extended periods of of danger and therefore high levels of neurological and physiological activation, right? Most animals, when they're under threat, they either live or die in moments, right? Like the the tiger uh, gets the impala or it doesn't. And then the impala, because it's not a human being, doesn't have anxiety about it for four months. It's just like, I'm not dead. Great, move on. Eventually, and this is what you see, people are in this state forever, a long time. And whether it be an athletic event, getting a Lyme infection, getting Epstein-Barr, getting COVID, um, getting a terrible stomach bug, some final threat, which people then see as the cause, but that's bullshit, guys. That was just the last thing breaks the nervous system. And when I say breaks it, I mean its capacity to maintain the sympathetic survival response fails. It just can't do it anymore. And we're not going to talk about this right now, but you can go do your own research, guys, on what's called the cell danger response. And the cell danger response shows that cells, especially the mitochondria, exposed to perpetual amounts of threat and, and, and stress, which are the same word, by the way, guys. Stress and threat are the same thing. Stress is just the, we'll get to that later, but they're the same thing. Those cells will eventually say, this is too much. And the word that we use, they go into energy conservation mode. They essentially default. They can't maintain the sympathetic. So they're going to go into the parasympathetic response, the freeze, the tonic immobility, the like almost kind of like hibernation, guys. Another word we use is torpor. It says, I still need to live. I'm following the prime directive. I can't die, but I have to choose a different strategy now because the other strategy, my physiology literally couldn't do anything. So I'm going to pause there because there's more to the story. But Jude, any questions, thoughts, comments on that? Maybe insights on your side. I have actually never heard CFS characterized in that way. So it's really interesting to hear almost like that it being um, described as this almost hibernation or almost like a fawn response this fawning this um this need to um it's almost like fake dead you know they're yes that's right faking dead it's like that's the sort of response that the the body goes into and it's really interesting that you mentioned and i'm not sure how far we want to go into it today but we are mentioning this mitochondrial dysfunction. And I'm curious um, about your degree of, of knowledge around the mitochondrial dysfunction and how that's approached. All I'm going to say right now about that is that my, that, like my deep scientific knowledge of the mitochondrial dysfunction is low. But what I can tell you from helping well over a thousand people recover from CFS in a very short amount of time, is that the mitochondria is subservient to the nervous system, not the other way around. 
meaning that the mitochondria went into their deficiency, their energy conservation mode, their lack of function because of the extended period of stress and the, and the messages of the nervous system saying, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard until collapse. So we don't treat mitochondria. We treat the brain and the nervous system in our program and the mitochondria start doing their job again. Mm. That's what I can say. Yep. Um, Again, it can get really deep. And we do know that epigenetically and inherently that mitochondria hold a lot of information and impact from previous generations. But again, from our empirical evidence and the effects of our program, well, your mitochondrial inheritance is not a life sentence. That's what I'm going to say for now. Uh, and, you know, Judy, you're kind of talking about that kind of, you know, that torpor, that hibernation. I think a lot of people with CFS would say, it is kind of like a half-life, right? That they're, 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 they're on life support. They're still here, but they can't do much, right? So that's what's going on. And to take it a little, to just back up, guys, remember, what is the logic of your organism? The logic of your organism is not die. It views things around it um, as threats or stressors. Same thing. All it has for millions of years of evolution are varying degrees of the fight, flight, and freeze response. There's also tendon per hand. There are social responses as well, et cetera. But like, it just had, like, if you're poker, you're playing five card stud, your nervous system, despite its incredible evolution, still only has five basic cards. And it plays them in one combination or another. Now, once you get into the energy conservation mode, anyone who has CFS knows that when they try to do sympathetic activity, when they try to go do stuff, they crash, right? And this is basically because the organism says, the organism has strongly associated activity, any sympathetic activity, like doing the dishes, much less meeting a work deadline, as dangerous. It says, oh, shit. We were sympathetic for years because we were surrounded by danger. Then doing stuff, doing too much made us sick. It burnt us out. I am never going to let you work again because we're going to die if you do that, right? That's now the current logic. And um, the first work of CFS school is to teach people how to teach their own nervous system to uncouple the relationship of sympathetic activity of doing work and danger. And we do that through something we, we use brain retraining and something called state shifting. We start make helping the brain uncouple the idea that doing stuff is dangerous and to couple it with positive states, whether that be joy, happiness, pleasure, fun, peace, calm, you name it, you can start making your brain have a different experience while doing a certain activity, right? So we'll literally teach people to cultivate a state of, let's say, fun or ease, and they'll deeply feel that state. And we say, now, while holding that state in your body, we want you to visualize doing the dishes, And then as they practice that, guys, you can try this on your own. Um, then we go, obviously, super in-depth in our program. They start to teach their brain to couple a pleasurable state with the activity. And it creates kind of a, a, 
uh, a door or a back door into sympathetic activity without the brain being like, oh, no, this is dangerous. We have to stop. So that's scratching the surface of what we're doing. We're using neuroplasticity and states, right, to associate them with actions that were previously thought to be dangerous. And now they become safe as perceived by the organism. And you can then do the activity again without your nervous system making you crash. And what's interesting around what you said there is around this, um, what I'm interested in exploring is the theory that that, that underpins the success of that decoupling it, it is based upon neuroplasticity and the science that we know um, surrounds chronic pain. Again, another mind-body um, condition. Because these are really complex um, bio-social, psycho conditions. And a lot of what we feel in our bodies relates to the narrative that we've subconsciously created around, around it. And this is, I use the word subconscious because a lot of people, as you say, have been driving themselves really hard before they get chronic fatigue syndrome. They tend to be quite type A personalities. They tend to be quite, there's a lot of perfectionists in this group of, 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 of people. And often this, um, this strategy for surviving their early life um, has come from... Those biopsychosocial factors. The biopsychosocial, so, so the biopsychosocial, so, the social factors, which are often which are formed in early life as the neuro, as the nervous system is developing. Yeah, so uh, Jude, I think you know what what Jude's pointing to, and we'll just finally drop the word. Uh, we could use the word trauma, but essentially, your childhood trauma, or we could simply say. The um, we also use the word attachment injuries, folks. We'll maybe go into the distinction there. But the quality of your childhood, the quality of the relationship, safety, um, and effectiveness of your relationship with your primary caregivers, especially especially your parents, um, shape how the brain and organism are going to interpret and navigate the world forever. So when we say, when someone says, I'm type A, although there may be some genetic predispositions to a certain type of, type of way of being, um, when someone is a perfectionist, perfectionism is only developed as a coping mechanism for various deficiencies in attachment in your development when you're young. No child develops uh, things like having to be an A student in school, unless they subconsciously or their organism perceives that the only way they get approval or acknowledgement or attention is via that from their parents, right? Um, um, yeah, I guess this is a long conversation, but there's a lot of work on this, but uh, proper attachment is defined by your parents having an empathetic, supportive, loving, and appropriate, like an attuned and understanding response to your needs 
as a child, basically from in utero through adolescence and beyond. And that means that like when my daughter trips and scrapes her knee, the attuned response as she's very upset and doesn't know how to comfort herself is for me to come in and truly hold her, uh, have my body comfort her body, wait until her nervous system calms down, look her in the eyes or just hold her and be like, baby, it's okay. Things hurt. Validating her experience, right? Not being like, ah, you just tripped. It's no big deal, right? What you're literally, in that moment, if you say you just tripped, it's no big deal, your best of intentions might have had, might be to have them get over it. But what you're actually teaching them is that their feelings aren't accurate, right? And that they might feel a little bit of shame, even though that's not what you meant to deliver. And then they're learning in that moment that they have to repress things like fear, sadness, expression to make you happy as the parent. That's one little micro example that happens a hundred and million thousand times in development. And if you're, uh, if those things are compromised, we get the platform for whether our nervous system uh, can, uh, before I talked about that, that wave of going into sympathetic to parasympathetic, sympathetic to parasympathetic, um, our capacity to have a pliable, flexible, adaptive, resilient nervous system is based on those development, uh, developmental attachment. Uh, by the way, this also includes helping your child develop agency, right? Where it's not just coddling, it's helping them safely take on challenges so that they expand and become braver, more courageous, more capable. Um, that's the other side of it. But if that's done right, you usually get people who don't get sick, okay? If that's done wrong, you have people who get sick because that foundational uh, prime directive of die, don't die, safe, unsafe is either working well or not working well. Basically. Well, it either gets confused or it's not. So like things, you know, because we're, we're, we're learning all the time and our nervous system is learning all the time and our immune system is then responding to those learnings all the time. So, you know, we're not born with fully mature nervous and immune systems. Those develop in our early life and that they will respond to the messages that we are being um, given consciously or subconsciously by those caregivers who are an extension of, of us and are co-regulating us consciously or co unconsciously. And what I found really interesting today was reading a paper um, published by Nature Review article um, looking at the impact of early childhood experiences on the development of our nervous and our immune systems, showing uh, a general trend towards a pro-inflammatory response in response to early childhood stresses. Yep. Which then in some cases lead in this, this paper was particularly looking at the impact on mental health, but then, and so depression and really sort of starting to recognize that some forms of depression are inflammatory. So it just is going to show that our early childhood experiences have a very real impact in the narrative that we are shaping around ourselves and how important that narrative is in, in alert, alerting our bodies and our minds. It's about, it's about the information flow. It's what that nervous system is actually, it's the information that's being circulated. And so if the information we have learned to grow up with is 
things are unsafe that are actually safe and vice versa. We have a very confused nervous system, which then it's very difficult to navigate around the world in in a sort of appropriate way and therefore we we sort of either over respond to everything and become perfectionists and you know very stressed and highly anxious all the time or we completely collapse and adopt you know need need to um display sickness behaviors and the only way that we can actually communicate our distress so whether that's through um biochemical signals of inflammation which we're learning more and more can be are happening and 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 um are mediating the sickness behavior um that we're displaying in depression as an example and although this wasn't mentioned in the paper specifically i did get curious around chronic fatigue being an example of sickness behavior. I mean, you've got the extreme fatigue, you, 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 you know, very sensitive to, you, you want to be in a, in a dark, quiet room. Like that, that's, you are displaying very clear sickness behavior, which is communicating to your people that you need help when you cannot say that for yourself um, and maybe don't want to say that for yourself, but my God, your body is saying it for you. Um, yes. So there's a growing, increasing, you know, body of evidence that's really describing how that's being biochemically mediated, which I think just for me, just adds this layer of like, you know, really real understanding about the importance of early life and these um, traumas that we experience. And I just want to also premise the fact that trauma can be such a loaded word and trauma, you know, it's very overused. Um, and we've got, and actually your, your co-founder, Jen, put, a, put something out on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, I think, just delineating what big traumas and little traumas were. So yeah. I want to just put sort of something to that around and that's why we also have like, you know, trauma and trauma and attachment injuries. We try to have these, you know, a, a wider array of language. Like you might have not had a traumatic childhood, but if your childhood did have, for example, where um, because of my dad's temper, the expression of certain kinds of emotions, my nervous system interpreted as dangerous because I'd get yelled at or it'd be terrifying if it happened. You don't have to call it a trauma but a lesson was deeply learned by your brain and organism that I'm not allowed to feel that way. Cause if I feel that way, bad things will happen. Right. And then it remembers that lesson for life. The other thing that I really want to offer now, cause we've been talking about childhood trauma as if or childhood issues. It's where they all come from, but it's also not a life sentence, right? The wonderful thing that's happening today is that really in the past two to three decades, we have developed effective therapeutic interventions that take advantage of psychological approaches, uh, somatic embodied approaches um, that help the brain change, that help the brain unlearn, right, or rewire. Because it really is a lot of rewire that, you know, the famous neurological statement. Uh, nerves that fire together, wire together. Nerves that fire together, wire together. Okay. And what's an example of this? If throughout childhood, if my nerves, um, if, if my dad's temper, right, for example, 
uh, every time it went off in, in regards to me, let's just say being sad, like don't cry. Well, those nerves would have fired hundreds of times over and over again. As that happened, they would have wired together at the same time. Other people, uh, for example, might, I want to take this into a difference that this is an example. There's, there's, there's accumulative wiring, but then there's acute wiring, right? If you get to a car accident prior to that, you might've never been afraid of being in the car, right? But all it took was one acute incident to then maybe wire fear and you feel anxiety when you get into a motor vehicle. The same phenomenon, whether it be consistency, right? Why firing, wiring over and over again every time my dad's temper went off or acute learning like a car accident, the same phenomenon can be used to unlearn and relearn new neurological associations, right? This is the crux of the work to take the same material that create the obvious negative responses and use that same same material material uh, same concepts of repetition and intensity or acuteness to start wiring differently to start wiring in a way where uh, a sense of actually being loved and accepted and that emotional expression is safe and not dangerous that's what we help people achieve with particular types of techniques practice in particular ways, you can change the brain and the organism's habituated response to really everything and anything. Uh, before you talked about the immune system, um, Jude, and we were talking about mitochondria before. I said before that the, the mitochondria is subservient to the nervous system, right? Similarly, the immune response is subservient to the brain and the organism. Um, just so you guys know, you know, a scientist would definitely say, I don't know about that, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you have an anxious, hypervigilant demeanor, okay, let's say, well, let's just go with type A, where your brain is constantly thinking about every task that comes your way and anything that goes into your inbox gives you a jolt of anxiety. If you're basically spending your whole time looking for external threats and responding aggressively to them, then your little immune cells traveling through your blood are doing the same fucking thing. I want you to imagine an immune cell that looks like a Pixar character of you, okay? In the same way you're responding to emails and deadlines and having to get the laundry done and what your husband said, those little immune cells are floating through your bloodstream being like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? Oh, is that pollen? I don't like pollen. Ah! Right? It's those immune cells are, are literally um, emulating the vibe of your overall brain and nervous system. And then they themselves are responding inappropriately and aggressively to invite to, to inane stimuli, right? Like gluten or whatever, and or your own bloody tissue. Now, there's scientific evidence to imply some support what I'm saying. What I just said was a big, okay, leap leap. But it's literally very much how we work. And in CFS school, we do wonders with autoimmune conditions because as the overall brain and, organi brain and uh, organism are feeling safe rather than endangered, all of their uh, nervous systems confused and therefore their immune systems confused or inappropriate responses start to heal and regulate. 
is really interesting because many autoimmune disorders are very often triggered in the same way or in very similar circumstances to chronic fatigue. So it's a major life event um, that normally is that last straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, and when you go back into someone's history, there's there's been a pattern of just yes. continually driving themselves. Um, you do a biopsychosocial history, biopsychosocial history, trauma intake history, stress intake history. Um, I, 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 you know, I'd love to see the statistics, but I'm sh- I've never seen someone with these disorders that doesn't have that history. What what interests me though as well is that there are going to be many people that you don't see because obviously you're going to be seeing a very skewed population, and you're Correct. going to be seeing you're going to be seeing the affected individuals, um, and there's going to be many people who have a similar history, but there's some sort of protective mechanisms that are in, that are in place that I, we don't know of. That's and, right. That actually um, do not cause the cascade of whatever it it is you know I, I don't no, no one is actually clear of the biochemical or um cascade which begins it all you know begins it often there's a virus which is really um only the trigger because the immune system is not responding in a healthy way and as we've said that's often in response to someone's nervous system being um being tired being tired so a a virus that the majority of people are going to fight off without even noticing they had it um can lead such catastrophic symptoms in someone who you know when it like the perfect example is like if you look at lyme disease right most people are going to blame the lyme jen and i are not going to do that we're going to ask why is the lime, why is the lime kicking her butt, right? Like, why isn't her, why isn't that person's immune system able to do its job where so, where, where, you know, such a large percentage of everyone else who gets a Lyme infection or an Epstein-Barr infection fights it off and they're back to normal, right? Almost everyone who's got an Epstein, Epstein-Barr, once they bounce back, they've got EBV in their body. You can measure it all the time, right? Similarly, People only get shingles, you know, once you have herpes and you have shingles, right? That thing's in your body forever. But the only time it comes out and messes you up is usually after a lot of stressors or when your energy is really low. So to blame the virus, as opposed to blaming why your organism isn't successfully managing the virus, are two very different therapeutic mindsets and approaches. Yes. Can you... Tell me how you go about doing that because I know you're you come from a bodywork background. So, what kind of bodywork are, are you using? And I'm also curious at what stage of illness someone can approach CFS school. Um, yeah, those those questions have really come into my to my head yeah mm. well uh, I, I start with the second question uh, uh, someone can come to CFS school 
basically at any stage of illness, really, I mean, from really acute to mild. The, the unfortunate thing is that they usually only find it as they're either a couple months or usually a couple years down the rabbit hole of intervention. They usually started with conventional medicine, right? Then they would have moved on to maybe functional medicine or other complementary forms, osteopathy and stuff. And um, come what may, whether they got a little bit better or not, they're getting worse. And so you can find us and start using us anywhere in the process. But usually you, people don't find this stuff until they have to find this stuff. So that's what I'd, I'd say about that. But we have people who are completely bed bound to do our work. Um, if you're in the midst of like acute infection, um, it's probably be difficult to do our work and you've got to stabilize to a, a mild degree before you can get into it. Um, but as for the body work, let me start here by my body work is still informed by that fundamental binary, safe or unsafe, um, fight or flight, dangerous or not dangerous. That's, that's what it's driven by. And so my body work approach is really about using touch to help a brain and an organism, a nervous system, start to feel safe, feel at ease, feel comfortable from the bottom up. Right? So again, it's, all, it's still so much about safety. How can I help a nervous system get out of a danger response? Because if I can help it get out of a danger response, it will go into a healing response on its own. I'll say that again. If I can get it out of a danger response, it will go into a healing response on its own. Right? I've, I've said this before. Like uh, When you get shot, okay, thank God a surgeon is there to repair the tissue enough so you don't bleed out and die. Right? But once that's done, what the surgeon and that kind of ideal recovery wing of the hospital has done is it sets up an environment where you're safe and supported for your own immune system to repair the tissue damage. That's how healing works. So even the best of medicine is supporting the body's ability to heal itself. We're just making sure it has that chance. Can so, I just can oh. I just can I just drive that point home? Because I think this is really important to understand what and what kind of blew my mind. Um, I was, when I was working in the intensive care department. So we're talking about the intensive care department. The work that is done in the in the intensive care department is simply supporting the body while it heals itself. There's very few interventions that are done over and above that. So we are sometimes needing to take over. Well, if they're in the intensive care department, it's more often than not that we are supporting someone's breathing. So we may be breathing for them. We may be, um, we may be supporting their blood, blood pressure. But whether or not that person is going to respond to any of those supportive measures is totally dependent on whether their body responds to the illness. And that may be the degree to which we've caught it and, 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 and given antibiotics. But essentially, essentially, 
We are waiting for the body to heal itself. The, the body is such an incredibly intelligent, regenerative organism that even in the depths of conventional medicine, and um, you can't really get much deeper than the, than, than the intensive care department, the treatment that is given there is supportive treatment in order for the body to have the time to heal. Period. That's amazing, dude. Yeah. So I hope everyone really absorbs that. And, and so then again, following that logic and following everything we've been talking about, again, the question becomes, what are all the things I can do in my power either as a teacher, as a guide, and then again, in our work, you become what we call a self-healer. In your power as the director of your brain, your nervous system, and your organism, what are all the things I can do to support the, the radical intelligence and self-healing ability of my body? And what I'm telling all of you guys right now, so whether you know it or not, if your brain and nervous system perceives itself to be in danger, over an extended period of time, it is not fucking healing. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. And so, when, again, when we go back to your original question about body work, um, the primordial form of comfort and connection for a human being in utero and as a baby is touch. The primordial form of comfort and connection, the most foundational way of creating attachment and safety between a human being is being on their mother's chest. And universally, the most soothing thing to any upset baby, to their disturbed nervous system, to their illness, is connection with mother and breastfeeding. By the way, there are some folks who, because of the trauma, childhood trauma they've had or adult trauma or abuse, touch has become dangerous. That's become a learned thing, right? Nerves that fire together, wire together. Uh, what should be the best opportunity to connect into love and safety and feel at ease and held and, and uh, achieve healing has unfortunately become polluted or contaminated by traumas and incidences. But taking those aside, and by the way, those can also be healed and unlearned and relearned. One can learn for touch to be a haven again. But putting that aside... The reason why certain kinds of body work that are informed by what I'm talking about can be so powerful is that they bypass the mind, they bypass conversation, they bypass logic, they bypass so much bullshit and get right into the visceral feeling of being a human and the original type of contact the initial type of information of communication that broadcast safety and ease and protection to a human brain and nervous system and body. And when you take that fundamental of approach and combine it with, you know, some decent body work skills and a polyvagal theory and stuff, you, you can do great things in helping to reteach a nervous system how to do it for itself through those kinds of inputs from the bottom up. Um, so that's, that's where the body work components come. And, you know, going back to the sort of neuroplasticity approach, I mean, again, it's just this rewiring. So if you have associated certain things like touch 
with danger, then, then that circuitry is, is present and therefore will spark this um, pain um, in however that's expressed. What I'm really hearing you say is that there is a relearning um, experience which goes from top down. So uncoupling the discomfort around the association you have with touch as an example, and I know I'm confusing things, but but stay with me here, is you're, you're decoupling the association, but also you are... Recoupling or newly coupling. That's it. You're recoupling or newly coupling. That's right. A, a new association with a with a with a new a new circuitry. You're, you're practicing. You're getting muscle memory. You're getting the new neurons to fire together. And like 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 anything, practice then allows neurons to fire and what fires together wires together, and you're actually forming a new circuitry within your body which then decouples the chaos decouples you from the chaos that has been created from your earlier life um and you actually can start to feel the reorganization of that i guess in the relief of the symptoms that you will start to feel that's exactly right That's so much clearer. And this is all based on, this is all based on neuroplasticity research that we, that we know of. And I know that you actually have a, a wealth of this information on your website, which I really love. I think it really gives a lot of people confidence in what you're teaching. And um, for those of us who really love to get into the nitty gritty of it, I just love to, to read on it, but it does give, overall confidence to what is being taught so this is based on neuroplasticity research this is based on adverse childhood events research this is based on neuro psychoneuroimmunology research um and this these are the underpinnings of the approach at cfs school that i understand am i missing anything or is there no you're doing great I, you know, the only thing that is this is this is a all that research is there and then there's just this mountain of amazing empirical clinical evidence right Mm -hmm. meaning just like guys this shit works it works and you know if 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 you're questing for um you know like what amount of information or research does one need to just try something that works right um you know we still don't really know why we need to sleep we don't, guys. We don't. By the way, we also don't know why large, massive objects create gravity. We just know that they do. Okay? Um, long before we understood the physics of thermal combustion, we got fucking internal combustion engines to work, and no one was like, nah, I'm not going to use one of those because I don't really understand how that hydrogen and carbon was metabolized into heat. No one was like, no one didn't use it. Almost all research and validation follows empirical success. So if you're holding out because you don't know, by the way, here's another thing. 
Then there's the mountain of research for everything that doesn't work, right? By the way, almost there's zero correlation, and it's really effectively zero, between MRI-observed malformations of the spine and pain. That's all been rebutted. Not only has it all been rebutted, but that there's actual ample evidence that the downstream effects of MRI diagnosis of spinal issues creates more problems than it solves. Actually, a lot more. It's terrible. So um, I don't want to be a truthiness guy. Okay, like I love research. We need it. We need a scientific standard. We do, guys. But also like an empirically evidence-based and effect, like, you know, outcome-based proof is to me better or as good as, you know, understanding the absolute fundamentals of it, right? I don't think we're ever going to understand every aspect of why neurons that fire together wire together. They do though. And we leverage those principles to help people heal themselves. I mean, medicine is based on being an art as much as a science. And and the art being the sort of um, the skillfulness and the interpersonal the interpersonal relationships that are built. Now, Jude, 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 real quick, I just want to take one more step because I'm on a soapbox here. Uh, please, if you know, I can do it if you don't. Please tell your audience, were, were antibiotics researched for decades before they were used or were they magically and fortuitously stumbled into by accident and then used? Mm. Do you know this story? So, right, there was a guy who was culturing, culturing a mold and it got accidentally colonized by penicillin. And then it killed a bacteria that was right next to it. And someone was like, whoa, that's so interesting. Did this mold just kill that bacteria? And then that person who knew a little bit about germ theory was like, holy crap. What happens if we just tried dumping some penicillin on some dude who has an infected uh, in, uh, scratch or limb? And then you know what happened, folks? The penicillin killed the bacteria and antibiotic medicine was born. That's how that happened. I think what you're trying to say really is that we don't have to research everything and maybe even understand everything down to the ground before we start applying, especially in conditions where we don't understand there are people who are suffering and we need to help them and there are people out there who are really invested in being able to help them I mean I know you've had a personal experience with CFS so has Jen I mean these are like really lived experiences that you feel very um, passionate about helping people with so that they can have hope and indeed results of curing something that really conventionally um doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a cure yeah on on conventional medicine so we do have to look elsewhere so i think the importance of research is really in communicating is is in communicating with interdisciplinary in interdisciplinary um so yeah. we can speak to each other and we actually do have confidence um and so speaking the same language yeah. and trying to validate as you said before, and I actually was thinking about this earlier. I was like, oh, um, I wonder what research can be done moving forward for, with CFS school on regards to the degree of success that you have with short, shorter term and longer term outcomes. Like, can that be measured? 
can that um, be captured? Um, because once that sort of information is captured yeah. and, and the results are validated, there's just a lot more. A real goal of ours is to try to hire a third party to mm. uh, do that for us. Because as you may, as you know, those, the, even, even um, uh, uh, research like that with a small scope is a big endeavor. Uh, but we'd really like to start getting more uh, of that evidence and those results and some trends in our work uh, measured and scored and presented. So we're going to get there um, and it'll be exciting. I would love to see that. And I think that there's a real scope. You have a lot of people coming through your doors. You have had a lot of success um, from um, anecdotally. And I, yeah, I was, I was curious earlier today thinking about, you know, whether you did have any plans to, to capture that in a, in a more empirical um, way. But yeah, I completely agree. You would need a third party um, to do that. It's a big undertaking. Um, and it's a beautiful thing really to get down into truth and validating what you um validate validating your own personal viewpoints so yeah would be yeah yeah gotta be careful of your own bias <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly and we're all guilty of that but um yeah what else um so this is a 12 it's a 12 week program i know that you have a study yourself version um a self-study version and also you have a live cohort, which is just about to go live. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah, um, we, uh, we, have a, we have our last cohort of the year go uh, beginning in th three weeks. Mm. Yeah, I think by the time this is published, uh, enrollment will be closed for that. But yeah, we have the self-study and the live. Okay. And you encourage the self-study program to be done over a at least a 12 year, 12 year, at least a 12 week period just to really pace the learning that. Yeah. You don't want to, so you guys, you don't want to binge learn this stuff. It's not like, first of all, we don't learn binge styles or at least we don't learn lastingly in a binge style. Um, this is, this is deep learning um, in, in CFS school. We, we do provide, you know, almost every module has some kind of lecture that's explanatory so that your left brain and your cognitive mind you know is on board the research side if you will um but really the rubber hits the road with the practices and the practices are you cannot bypass repetition and intensity when you want to work with the brain the brain learns exclusively from experience and as we talked about early either repetitive experience or intense experience i called it acute or both repetitive acute um, and these are practices that need to be done because that's how the nervous system the organism learns unlearns relearns and we teach in 12 weeks we actually think that's the that's the fastest it should be taught and that at the end of those 12 weeks you're not you're not supposed to be a jedi master at regulating your nervous system but you are supposed to have every critical component and practice for being able to do so. Uh, and one of the wonders is, you know, most folks have incredible results just within our 12-week time frame. But other people will loop back to us three, six, nine months later and just talk about they keep getting better, which is remarkable. And they're, they keep getting better without our support. This is the use of 
foundational, fundamental, elemental, elemental principles of brain and organism to create a different human being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the general gist is that the first third of the pro- first quarter of the program is more of the brain retraining. I talked about a little bit earlier using top down techniques to reassociate beneficial non-danger states with yourself and with activity. Then we transition into the polyvagalance uh, uh, body-based components where we're helping you work with your vagus nerve, which we're not going to talk about now, except to say that it helps take you out of the danger response. Um, And from a bottom-up and from a very autonomic nervous system level, create safety and ease, which helps tremendously. And then the next quarter is where we get into what we call the self-directed trauma resolution model, where we help you work with that developmental trauma that is usually creating a lot of your adverse responses and behavior and presence. Um, and those are um, more embodied, more emotional, takes a little bit longer, um, but that's where our work gets really, really well laid and becomes sustainable. Like it's not like that's where the, the real meat and potatoes is. Um, and then the final quarter is something that we call the emerge component where, um, most people come to our work to repair, but then you can use that same work to transcend and to enter uh, a new life that wasn't uh, defined by your developmental coping patterns and illness. And now you have a, a life defined by expansion, openness, adventure, freedom, and, um, what you want. Uh, and so that's where the, that's how that program concludes itself. And the difference between the self-study and the live is that the live, you have a tremendous level of support uh, from Jen and I and the team. And for uh, and, uh, so self-studiers, it really works for self people who are really good at self-directed learning. Uh, it's also a much more affordable program. And then the live is for people who want all the bells and whistles. And you can learn more about the difference programs on our website. And what are the details of that website that people can um, really get the... the... Yeah, so the best way to get the lowdown on us is uh, www.chronicfatigueschool.com. And then the other three really, really useful resources are my Instagram, Jen Instagram, and the CFS School Instagram. The CFS School Instagram is just CFS School. Uh, Jen is Jennifer, Jen or Jen Man. No, 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 sorry. Jennifer is J. Cammy Lee. And I'm Carden Rabin. And between those four sources, the three Instagram and the website, uh, there's a huge amount of stuff there. And I'll put all of those details in in the show notes for anyone who's looking for um, those direct links. Well, thank you so much, Carden, for being direct, being frank, and being very descriptive, actually, in, in the approach that you deliver. And... And why you deliver um, it, it in that way, because I'm really hearing there's a top-down, bottom-up approach, which is quite unique in the CFS space um, and is quite is, is holistic um, in, in its and, and deep. It's, it's holistic work and it's and it's deep work. And uh, and um, yeah, thank you for bringing it to the world. I think you're you're helping so many people. Hmm. Jude, thank you for that. It feels really good. It's been so nice to spend all this time with you and you've been so patient in letting me yap forever. And um, I thank you for uh, being one of the the spreaders of the knowledge because um, I like to say that there's an ocean of people that need help. 
uh, and there's only like a pond or puddle of people who can really help with programs that are working. And we need your help and everyone's help to uh, to cross that chasm between uh, the people who need help and the people who can help. So thank you for what you do. Yeah. And yeah, and I couldn't agree more. I think that that chasm, we need more people um, who know about the help that they can sign people signpost people to when they are in distress because they, there's often very few options available to them. And when they uncover some options, it's very difficult to know what each one is involved. Uh, I think it's yeah, really overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And that's certainly not um, helpful in the states that they're in. So thank you very much for your time and for your explaining your approach um, and for anyone listening. And if it resonates um, with them to to follow the links in the show notes. So thank you so much, Carden. Thank you, Jude. Thank you for listening, Body, Mind, Soul Seekers. If you want to connect with trusted alternative therapists, learn more about what they do and how they can help you, check out my new holistic healthcare platform, The Witchy Women. Or if you are a holistic healer that wants to serve and help more people, book in a discovery call with me. Find more details at thewitchywomen.com. To show your support for this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Thank you all so much. Until next time.